I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. So for this episode, I would like to provide balance to to our last episode. Okay. I would like to talk about a, a different model town built by uh, an incredibly wealthy and powerful man. Okay. So we're going to talk about the Pullman strike. Okay. So George Pullman, he was an engineer turned industry baron. Uh, he, his first notoriety, he was part of the team of engineers that determined how to raise Chicago's grade four feet. Yes. So that the sewer system could be built w- what used to be street level. Yes. Mm-hmm. Impressive, because we are built on top of a swamp. Mm-hmm. Turns out the answer was a lot of jack screws and, and uh, people desperate for work. Yeah. That's, that's basically how, how they managed. Yeah. But he made his fortune, the company that bared his name, inventing a new kind of sleeper car, the Pullman Princess. Ooh. These were rail cars that uh, would have the, the chairs fold away and the uh, upper racks unfold so that when, when the sun came down, everyone had a nice, comfortable place to sleep. On on long journeys. Everyone or just still the people that could afford that? Everyone who bought a ticket for the Pullman car. Yeah, so there you go. One unique thing about the Pullman company was that they didn't sell their cars to the railroad. They operated them themselves. Mm -hmm. So you would buy a rail ticket to get on the train and then a Pullman car ticket to get the nice comfy sleeper car. Ah. They were fairly lavish, but they they were basically middle-class luxury. Yeah. what they were. Yeah. Okay. And their big coming out party, their their initial splash was made when Lincoln's funeral train was equipped with a number of Pullman cars. For his ghost? For his family. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and all of the other people on the funeral train. I prefer to think that it was just a really long train just for Lincoln. Yeah. And a lot of ghosts. Sure, sure. Why not? Uh, so you have hundreds of thousands of people lining the streets, looking at, hey, that's a handsome car, and all the human interest stories talking about, you know, the mourners and their life on the train. The, the name Pullman got out in a big, big way mm-hmm. with with that get. So that means George needs a, a new, bigger factory floor to meet all that demand. Mm-hmm. And our, our good friend George was a, a detail-oriented guy. He wanted everything to meet his standards. He wanted the very best rail cars, so he needed the very best workers. And in order to have the best workers, they had, had to live in the best possible town, all according to his definition of best. Yes. So he had an agent buy 4,000 acres of land south of the Chicago border and began building his company town, Pullman, Illinois. Oh, company towns. That's never a good term. (laughs) Pullman had everything a town could need and had higher quality homes than Chicago's workers would normally have had access to. They had indoor plumbing. They had running water, uh, daily garbage collection, natural light, uh, 30,000 trees throughout the small town. Pullman had it all. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, the real car shops opened in April 1881. Uh, a month later in May, the town had 300 residents. Uh, construction ended in 1884 at an estimated cost of $8 million. Uh, the town itself, once it was up and running and thriving, was an attraction in its own right at the 1893 World's Fair. Mm-hmm. People just coming a a bit down the line to see George Pullman's perfectly planned and orderly town by then home to 12,000 people. So within 12 years? Yes. Okay. Fast growth. I mean, there there was a job for everybody. It was the kind of the point. Yes. Uh, Here is George Pullman describing the the, uh, idea behind Pullman, Illinois in his own words. The object in building Pullman was the establishment of a great manufacturing business on the most substantial basis possible, recognizing that the working people are the most important element which enters into the successful operation of any manufacturing enterprise. At least that's how Pullman wanted to say it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
uh, the town was in every way an extension of the company. Uh, you had your detached homes for executives. The foremen had the nice row houses, skilled workers in, in smaller uh, rooms than that, and the unskilled workers in tiny apartments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There were no elections in Pullman, Illinois. Instead, you had a city manager who had nine department heads and 300 people directly reporting to them running everything to do with the town. Uh-huh. All Pullman Rail Company employees. Yes. George Pullman himself had extensive control on what the residents could do. Of course. Of course. It's a company town. That's why it's never a good idea. <laughs> a Chicago Tribune reporter put it this way in uh, 1888. There are a variety and freedom on the outside. There are monotony and surveillance on the inside. None of the superior or scientific advantages of the modern of the model city will compensate for the restrictions on the freedom of the workmen. The denial of opportunities of ownership, the heedless and vexatious parade of authority, and the sense of injustice arising from the well-founded belief that the charges of the company for rent, heat, gas, water, etc. are excessive, if not extortionate. Pullman may appear all glitter and glow, all gladness and glory to the casual visitor, but there is the deep, dark background of discontent which it would be idle to deny. You don't get a lot of people saying vexatious. No. Or extortionate in papers today. No. Man, I miss the old days. (laughs) But yeah, one thing I hadn't mentioned to this point that that uh, uh, quote uh, shares is that Pullman wasn't just your, your landlord. The Pullman company was your gas company, was your electric utility. Everything went back to the company. Yes. Uh, including rent, because nobody but Pullman was allowed to own any land. Yeah. So you could be evicted at any time without notice. Yep. The hotel bar was the only establishment that sold any alcohol, and workers were not allowed to buy it. Then what was it there for? Entertaining visiting businessmen. Uh-huh. Yeah. So Pullman owned the school and decided which books they could use. Uh, Pullman decided what was stocked on the library shelves, what was performed in the theater. There was one church building that everybody had to share, and approved denominations had to pay rent to use it for services. Uh Uh-huh. The church sat empty. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's a, a famous quote that is not credited to any particular Pullman worker. Uh, it goes, We are born in a Pullman house, fed from the Pullman shops, taught in the Pullman school, catechized in the Pullman church, and when we die, we shall go to the Pullman hell. Ooh. Now, meanwhile, as mentioned in a previous episode, yeah. George Pullman was living in the city's most lavish mansion, regularly entertaining 400 guests. Yes. I'm- he also had final say on what was performed in that theater, but that's because the theater was part of his own private home. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So check out our Prairie Avenue District uh, episode. We mentioned Pullman a time or two. Yeah, I was going to say, did I actually talk about his house at all? I remember you specifically talking about him being displeased with how ugly the Glessner house was and wondering what he did to deserve that. Okay. Oh, and, so his... And now I'm delivering on the promise of that episode. Well, I'm trying to remember which one his house... His house isn't still standing. His house no longer stands. Yes. No. It was torn down and is now modern row houses. Yes, that's yeah. right. Okay. So while Pullman, Illinois managed to grow and generate an annual return on Pullman's investment for over a decade, mm-hmm. it did not last forever. There was a, uh, a downturn in 1893, which led to uh, a depression across the country. And so in 1894, to cut costs, Pullman began waves of layoffs and cut wages by a third. Mm. They did not lower rents. Yeah. Or utility bills in Pullman, Illinois. Yeah. So on May 11th, 1894, the workers walked out of the Pullman car works. They were not organized by any union. This was a wildcat strike. Mm -hmm. Now that term is more commonly associated with workers striking without their union leadership. A recent example would be last year's teacher strikes in Oklahoma, Arizona, and Kentucky. Yes. 
Part, part of Pullman, Illinois' design wasn't just, you know, all these grand amenities and, and uh, lovely architecture, the, the first all-brick town in America. Mm-hmm. It was also designed to reduce the chances of labor organizing. All public meetings had to be approved by company management. Of course! Uh, it was isolated from Chicago's working-class neighborhoods, which also means isolation from other workers and from labor organizers. Yeah. And and everything, your entire life, was reliant on the company to make workers believe that they needed the boss more than the boss needed them. Yes. Which is never true, by no. the way. No. So, following the walkout, Pullman responded by just closing the factory and waiting them out. There was a depression on. Yeah. Uh, the plan was to just make the workers desperate for their old jobs at any old rate. Uh, so the strikers, in need of support, sent a telegram to the American Railway Union. Mm-hmm. The American Railway Union was an industrial union. It was a union of the entire rail industry, founded the year before to unite all railway workers, regardless of what they did for the railway. Uh-huh. The previous model was that people in a certain job would join that jobs union. The industrial union was pretty new. Yeah. Uh, So their board of directors included representatives from those separate unions of conductors, carmen, engineers, switchmen, uh, the firemen, the telegraphers, etc. They they were all together with the ARU. Mm -hmm. Their president was Eugene V. Debs, uh, who started his working life as an unskilled... as an unskilled laborer on the railroads, uh, he became a magazine editor. He had spent one term as an Indiana state representative by this point. Mm-hmm. And Debs himself joined the ARU representatives in Pullman to see whether their fledgling union would take up the cause. Reporting on what he saw, Debs said, I found that the wages and expenses of the employees were so adjusted that every dollar the employees earned found its way back into the Pullman coffers, that they were not only not getting wages enough to live on, but that they were daily getting deeper into the debt of the Pullman company, that it was impossible for many of them to leave there at all. Wages had been reduced, but the expenses remained the same, and no matter how offensive the conditions were, they were compelled to submit to them. After I heard those statements, I satisfied myself that they were true, and I made up my mind as president of the American Railway Union, of which these employees were members, to do everything in my power that was within law and within justice to right the wrongs of those employees. Woo! So, many more Pullman workers signed up as ARU members, and the next stage began. We're going to take a quick break and get back to to what... What these people did combined. I bet there'll be a lot of bloodshed. Spoilers! Spoilers! Nim, 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 I'm nim, guessing! Nim, 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 nim. It's a strike episode! Come on! In the 1800s. <laughs> Lots of death and mutilation. Welcome back, everybody. Hello! I did not know you started recording. <laughs> <laughs> I would have I would have stopped goofing off a while ago. So the the ARU's plan was to uh put pressure on Pullman to force them to to agree to arbitration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the the process by which uh labor and management hash out their differences in front of uh, an impartial judge. Okay. Again, the ARU was one year old. They had had one success up to this point, and that was doing the same thing. They they pushed a, a railway to arbitrate with their workers. Workers got what they were after. Yes. Sound plan. Except the Pullman company refused entirely. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. Coincidentally, the summer of 1894 was when the ARU had scheduled their uh, national convention to elect new leadership in Chicago, Illinois. Oh! It's a giant rail hub. It it makes sense. Yes, it does. But that means that Pullman workers had a national audience of sympathetic ears, you know, people representing thousands of union locals from, from coast to coast when they reported on their progress and on their grievances, like, it, it got the word out quite effectively. Yes. 
the ARU convention voted to accept a labor boycott plan. Until Pullman agreed to arbitration, no ARU member would handle a train that included a Pullman car. Oh. This was a brand new tactic. Yeah, that I mean, that's like, that's big. Especially considering how much market penetration Pullman had. They would come to, uh, around the turn of the century, have 100% of the sleeper car business. Yeah. Weren't quite there yet, but they were getting there. They were close. If there was a passenger train, there would be a Pullman car on it. Yeah. So, they set their deadline for June 26th. It came and passed. And on midnight, workers barricaded Grand Crossing, the largest railway crossing in the world. Where was that? South side of Chicago. Okay. Yeah. Switchmen across the country were the first to act, refusing to attach Pullman cars to trains in rail yards. Mm -hmm. And they followed the plan that if uh, a switchman was fired for insubordination, all the other switchers on the rail yard would quit on the spot and go home. Yeah. So within four days, 125,000 workers on 29 railroads had walked off the job. The strike would hit its peak at uh, double that many, 250,000 workers at a time. Mm -hmm. George Pullman by now had left the state of Illinois entirely, moved to his other mansion on an island in the St. Lawrence River. Mm -hmm. uh, was, didn't didn't want to stay in town. Yeah. Yeah. So on June 29th, uh, after a few weeks of this labor boycott, uh, Debs was giving a speech in nearby Blue Island, Illinois. After it was done, workers began damaging property in the Blue Island rail yards. Uh, several buildings were set on fire. One locomotive was knocked off the tracks. Uh, that that takes a lot of effort. It, it does. Never <laughs> underestimate labor power. Yeah. That's what I'll say. Uh, that yard is now the site of the Vermont Street Station on the Metra Electric Line. Ah. Yeah. Well, if I remember correctly, too, Blue Island. Mm -hmm. So that's like southwest. Southwest suburbs, yes. Yes. Blue Island now is not, you know, an island, but it originally <laughs> was. Oh. Like, I remember reading about that on, like, a forgotten Chicago <laughs> Facebook page uh, that... Blue Island was actually an island. It's also where Gary Sinise is from. Did not know that. Yeah. So that that Blue Island uh, bit of arson, I guess, is, is uh, considered the first violent act of the strike. Oh, no. The poor locomotive. Uh, and Thomas. It's <laughs> never going to be the same. Uh, and similar actions broke out across rail networks as Pullman continued to refuse to negotiate, not even going to entertain the idea of arbitration. Mm -hmm. uh, a week earlier, Pullman executives had already been meeting with other rail industry companies to collaborate on not just breaking the strike, but the whole ARU. Yeah. Uh, this, this group of rail managers had also been petitioning the U.S. government and President Cleveland to try to get some help. Mm-hmm. So, what did the government do? Nothing good. They, they were prompt. They were swift. Uh, that's something you look for. But probably nothing good. President Cleveland gave the job for responding to, to these problems to his attorney general, Richard J. Onley. Uh, before joining the administration, he had served as general counsel for the Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul Railway. Mm-hmm. While serving as attorney general, he was still on retainer for the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad. Oh, boy. In fact, that retainer was $10,000 a year compared to his federal salary of $8,000 a year. Oh, so we know <laughs> where his allegiance lies. By 25%. Uh, so his strategy was to use the power of the courts to end the strike. On July 2nd, uh, he, he got a federal injunction which barred union leaders from telling workers to engage in boycott or strike actions. Uh, he, he sort of towed the line where like, he, he couldn't tell them not to you know, be on strike, but he could tell them not to tell the members of their union to be on strike or how to do it or like any organization strategizing, anything like that. They, they didn't listen. They didn't follow the injunction. Yeah, but that's what the injunction said. Dumb. 
<laughs> it was the first time the U.S. courts were involved in a strike. Anli said that, like, nope, this is what we're doing. Well, I, I have my my grounds here, and uh, all you state and local judges should follow uh, and do the same. Issue your own injunctions to people within your jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, that injunction was ignored. Two days later, on uh, Independence Day of uh, 1894, President Cleveland ordered the United States Army to march on Chicago. Because that's a great way to celebrate your freedom. <laughs> I'm sorry, but the uh, Third Amendment states I do not have to quarter federal troops and uh, get off my lawn. Uh, the foundation of the legal argument was that there was a constitutional requirement to send the mail. Uh-huh. So all this rail uh, traffic being stopped by, you know, not getting through the yards, uh, having blockades, having, uh, uh, you know, railroad ties pulled up and, and bridges sabotaged. If the mail can't get through, that's a federal matter. Ponies still exist. <laughs> Fuck you, government. They weren't messing with the telegraph lines. <laughs> There's you know, there's wagons, there's horses, there's all kinds of other stuff you can use. All the stuff that existed when that was written into the Constitution was still applicable. Still yeah. available. Yeah. Uh, Cleveland said, quote, If it takes the entire Army and Navy to deliver a postal card in Chicago, that card will be delivered. The Attorney General's uh, uh, case was also built on the Sherman Antitrust Act, arguing that the ARU was an illegal monopoly of labor. Okay. If we're going to talk about an illegal monopoly of labor, <laughs> uh huh, I think we can talk about someone else in this episode. <laughs> How about a monopoly of every single aspect of life for 12,000 people? Yeah. Yeah. So in response to the armed occupation of 12,000 troops in Chicago alone, workers destroyed more railroad property. Yeah! By July 7th, so just three days, about $340,000 in damages had been racked up. Uh, plug that into an inflation calculator, it'll spit you out about $10 million in contemporary buying they power. They could have done better. <laughs> Give them time, it's only three days. <laughs> Troops were escorting a train through the back of the yards neighborhood. Mm -hmm. uh, also mentioned in our Mary Daly episode, I guess. Uh, people threw bricks, and they responded with bullets, killing 12. Goodness. Uh, this was repeated on a smaller scale across the country in other railroad hubs. Uh, federal marshals were deputizing people by the hundreds. A uh, hundred people in one mon- 120 in one Montana town alone. I wasn't sure there are any Montana towns with 120 people, but shows what I know. Eh, gold rush-ish stuff. <laughs> you know, there were people then. Cat cattle? Not a cattle. Mm -hmm. Workers racked up tens of millions of dollars of total property damage over the course of the strike. You'll be glad to know, dear. Good, good. And far more if you wanted to, to tally up uh, lost productivity through the barricades and the work stoppage. Mm -hmm. uh, on the other hand, U.S. troops killed 30 strikers and bystanders uh, and injured 57 more. Because they threw rocks. And all that so George Pullman's company could make more profit off of its own employees. Yep. So public response nationally, generally, was against the strike. Mm-hmm. Representing this as, you know, bloody battles instigated by fiendish anarchists, you know, these foreign uh, 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 radical I immigrants working on our rail lines. Oh, that sort of angle sells a lot of papers. Yes. Uh, j just look at, like, the, the art in Harper's Weekly depicting these events, and, and you will see a bent to it. Yeah. Uh, ne never mind just the uh, commercial interest of... of you know, punching things up. But people who own railroads also own papers. Yeah. Or at the very least, they're, you know, go and join the same social clubs as people who own papers. Mm -hmm. Their wives are in sewing circles with the wives of the people who own papers. Yeah. And, yeah. So the plight of Pullman, Illinois, and its residents 
was completely lost in the national conversation. The, the inciting grievance was nowhere to be seen once troops started marching on Chicago. Yeah. On July 7th, five days after the injunction, three days after uh, uh, the U.S. Army invaded the city, Debs and other ARU leaders were arrested for violating that injunction and sentenced to six months in prison. Uh-huh. The blow to morale and the following lack of coordinated leadership in order to respond to, to this act led to the end of the strike. Yeah. I could insert another massive black quote from Debs saying as much, <laughs> but trust me. Dude was vocal. Like, he made a lot of speeches. Uh, on July 20th, strikers started going back to work. On August 2nd, the ARU formally ended their boycott, and Pullman, Illinois opened again for business. Now, the, the known strikers were blacklisted from working on the railroads, still in the midst of a depression, mm-hmm. and wages were kept at those one-third cut rates. Yeah. In the short term, like so many of these other labor episodes we've talked about, they didn't get anything they were uh, uh, after. Mm-hmm. But let's talk long term. Okay. Six days after the end of the strike, President Cleveland announced a National Labor Day. That's weird. It, he had to bolster his reputation with the working man. I don't after- support your labor. But let's have a Labor Day. Yeah, yeah. You know, all, all you nice ones that don't actually advocate for your interests. That's why the United States Labor Day is in September and not aligned with most of the world's labor holidays that commemorate the May 1st general strike for the eight-hour day. Yeah. Six years previous to these events. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Eugene V. Debs spent his prison sentence reading. He came out of prison an avowed socialist and uh, would go on to found the Socialist Party of America and ran for president five times. Dang. That's a lot of times. The ARU was not a long-lived union. It folded, and its structure became an early component of a group called Social Democracy America, which was Debs' predecessor to uh, the Socialist Party of America. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, President Cleveland founded a commission to investigate the cause of the strike, which found Pullman, Illinois, an un-American and paternalistic enterprise. I'm very confused by Cleveland's involvement and stuff regarding all this. He needed to get the trains running on time. And now that they are, we can give Pullman a a citation. It's very bizarre. (laughs) This is... The late 1800s. All you had to do to be president was say you were in the Civil War, be from Ohio, and have a mustache. (laughs) Those were the three qualifications for president. Yeah. Yes. In 1898, the Illinois Supreme Court ordered Pullman to divest the town. It found that their company charter was for making sleeper cars, not for being landlords, being utilities, being a school, etc., etc. Yeah. The, the land was sold off. People were allowed to buy the land their house sat on if they could afford it. Uh, the, the town had been annexed to Chicago, but now it was just properly a Chicago neighborhood like any other, as it remains to this day. Mm-hmm. But with, like, historical neighborhood designations, because there yes. are some buildings that date back to the town of Pullman rather than the neighborhood of Pullman. Yes. Yeah. Um, Open House Chicago, which is in October. Very soon. Uh, I believe normally does a lot in the Pullman neighborhood. You want to drive down? We'll see. Okay. <laughs> we'll see what's open, what days. It's like 115th or something. It, it's in that range. What? How far south it is. It's around like 115th Street, 112th Street. Oh, 115th, yes. 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 I was confused by why 115th. No one says it that way. I do. It's weird. (laughs) (laughs) Attorney General Onley uh, got a move uh, into a new job when the Secretary of State died. So he became Secretary of State Onley. Oh. uh, And declared the Onley Declaration a new interpretation of the Monroe Doctrine that said, the United States has the right to mediate border disputes in Latin America. Why? Why do you have that right? 
Because uh, the UK and one of the independent nations of South America were having a bit of a border dispute, and he wanted to say that's our job to serve as the mediator in your arbitration. Just gotta put your hand in everything, dude. Yeah, that... Calm down. That did not last long. Yeah. That was overruled in the early 1900s. Uh, George Pullman died in 1897. His casket in Graceland Cemetery is buried under tons of concrete and steel Yep, for fear workers would desecrate his corpse. I think I talked about that in one of my episodes. (laughs) Now, his tomb was designed by the same architect that he hired to do Pullman, Illinois. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The company was then run by President Lincoln's son. I guess that funeral train really imprinted on him as a younger man. That's weird. (laughs) And, yeah... Yeah. That's strange. After being released from prison, uh, Debs hired Clarence Darrow to appeal his case. The appeal went all the way to the United States Supreme Court on whether the federal government had the right to issue that injunction at all. Mm Mm-hmm. The court's decision upheld the injunction on the basis of the constitutional power to regulate interstate commerce and responsibility to ensure the general welfare of the public. Uh-huh. Use of court injunctions to break strikes continues to this day. Yep. Now, Pullman went on. Uh, there's another famous Pullman strike, a strike by the Pullman Porters in the 1920s, mm-hmm. which is the f- uh, just a landmark case of a, a strike that won rights, the, the first uh, of primarily uh, black workers to, to win a major strike. Yeah. And maybe that'll be a future episode. But their company story ends also by the Sherman Antitrust Act. Yeah. When uh, the the part of the company that makes rail cars, the part of the company that manages rail cars and does the the Pullman Porter ring and all that, was forcibly split by the government. Mm -hmm. Both of those companies were then uh, uh, put under when rail travel was no longer how people got across the country. Yeah. It was killed by highways and, in small part, commercial air travel. Yeah. 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 The, the now we deal with Amtrak. The motel killed the Pullman car, really. <laughs> That's super eight. Yeah. 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 So, darling, what have you learned? That I'm now pretty disappointed in Labor Day. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, you know, of the summer holidays, it's the one I could get behind because, like, workers' rights... But now I know that Cleveland was just an idiot <laughs> with his crew. Like, or I don't want to say an idiot because, like, yeah, Labor Day, we should have a holiday about that. Mm-hmm. But, but his reasoning behind it. Just a little bit of appeasement to paper over the people who are sore yes, about the. And it angers me. Yeah. <laughs> and it makes me all the more into May Day. Yeah. Yes. Okay. That's what I've learned. Also, I swear, if, like, one more person, like, tells me we're supposed to honor the military on Labor Day, I'm going to lose it. (laughs) Is it? Because Labor Day commemorates when the military shot uh, at least 87 citizens, killing 30. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. People get really freaking confused and think (laughs) it's just another, like, Memorial Day. Mm -hmm. And, like, no, it's not. You walking around in your 4th of July get-up on Labor Day is a little strange, considering the U.S. government was the problem. Well, they have to wear as much white as they can, because the next day, all gone. You're just not allowed. Yeah. You're not allowed. Yeah, so that's it's strange. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it makes it feel kind of weird. Mm-hmm. That I, I'm going to start, uh, I think, uh, I don't want to say a petition, but like a, a new uh, investment in our, our May labor celebrations yeah i mean if the u.s has to be different and not have it may 1st let's have it may 4th yeah let's have a market day yeah explicitly let's do that one <laughs> yeah. yeah let's make it bigger better let's go tip over some rail cars it'll be great mm-hmm. it's like cow tipping but bigger yeah just make sure there's no cows on the train when you do it please <laughs> If your train goes moo, it's a problem. Do it ARU style. Hurt no one. Yes. But wood and steel, because they don't have feelings. Yes. Yeah. So with that, we're going to take one more break and be back with your letters.
Welcome back, everybody. Hello! At the end of our last episode, I asked everyone what they did for Labor Day. Yep. And uh, it's a good thing a lot of our, our letters this uh, episode came in from our American listeners so that all of the rest of you didn't have to really strain your memories. Yeah. <laughs> Peter writes in, and on this most recent Labor Day, uh, he was doing voluntary work, helping people with their English, uh, and, and particularly making sure that the words impotent and independent are pronounced very distinctly. That makes sense. You don't want to no. get those screwed up. Like uh, if you were teaching Spanish, you want to make sure you don't confuse embarrassed and pregnant. That's a tricky one in Spanish. Oh. Yes. Well, in sign language, you don't want to confuse pregnant and fat. Also real life. <laughs> that's a bad one. Yeah, that's a way to really whack people off. In any language. We, we also get a note on our Swedish pronunciation. Not going to remember that, but valiant effort. Thank you. Yeah, it, <laughs> just don't count on that ever being good. But the rest of Peter's letter is taken up with three distinct and strange ways to drink coffee across scandinavia hey the swedish have coffee cheese Ugh. it's a plain solid cheese sort of tofu like in consistency you put it in the coffee after you finish drinking the coffee eat the cheese is is it similar to like the cheese foam that's popping up in like boba drink shops i is it don't different? know how about egg coffee Ugh. Just before you start brewing a coffee, you add an egg. Ugh. The whole shell uncracked egg. What? And then what? You, you grind it all up into the coffee. Why? The white and the shell increase the density of the grounds, making it easier to filter without any paper, while the yolk combats the bitterness of the coffee when served black. It's apparently good. And the grounds are extra good for your garden compost. Okay, I'm going to say there's probably a certain way they're making coffee there that isn't the same as my coffee machine here, so I shouldn't try it. You can also substitute uh, fish skin for the egg. You know, I might be learning not to drink coffee elsewhere. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. I feel like coffee's supposed to be a safe food. It's beans and water. Or now, fish skin. people who have egg and fish allergies have to be terrified. <laughs> it's still gluten-free. It's fine. <laughs> Next, he's going to write in and tell us about when you put a whole loaf of bread. Yeah. Wheat coffee. <laughs> I guess there are probably places that, I mean, judge people's, like, pumpkin spice lattes. They're here. I mean, I judge those. So, like, yeah, they're disgusting. Okay. <laughs> I don't. I don't get it. It's not a cultural thing, it just tastes bad. Yeah, yeah, I don't get it. Okay. I mean, it's basically a cultural thing here at this point for people. <laughs> <sighs> but your critique is, tastes bad. It's bad. Okay. It's bad. Uh, Isaac writes in and shares a very cute cat picture. Yes. Um, of his uh, kitties, Morgan, True, and Hollis. Uh, and also shares for Labor Day... Isaac yelled at certain companies' working conditions and tried to find employment. Going back to the roots of the holiday, yeah. I guess. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Isaac. Ellie writes in for the first time. Glad to hear from you, hey. Ellie. Also providing a picture of a cat. Aww. She shares some very kind words about our show. Thank you very much. And the story of Ranald McDonald. Yes, I did say Ranald McDonald. The first American to teach English in Japan. Oh. Yeah, what, what is now a rite of passage for college-educated anime fans was started by Ranald McDonald. Okay. Uh, he was a Native American born somewhere in the 1820s. Records are sparse. And uh, a conventional wisdom being that, you know, Native Americans crossed into North America over the, the Bering Strait an ancient land bridge from Asia. He wanted to explore the the land of his forebears, uh -huh. despite how incredibly isolationist uh, Japan was at the time. He tried it anyway. He found a whaling ship that was going most the way there, then took a dinghy and an oar from there and uh, uh, rode for a few days to Hokkaido. 
Oh. He found no one who spoke English, and uh, the the people of Hokkaido found a guy that they were certain was some sort of American spy. So he he was locked up under house arrest in a temple, temple arrest, I guess, for about a year until some Dutch traders showed up, did some, like, multilingual interpretation between them. Uh, the, the Japanese locals were uh, then convinced he wasn't part of an invading army, and then thought, well, learning English wouldn't be the least useful skill, so they kept him around, and he started giving English lessons to samurai. Uh, he was declared dead uh, back home. Nobody in the U.S. had any idea where he was, just presumed lost on this whaling expedition. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of whalers, another whaling ship wrecked, and uh, the sailors that washed up on the Japanese coast were terrified because they figured, we are to be killed. Uh, we're, we're not allowed to be here. Mm-hmm. But instead, they found a samurai who spoke English and was able to talk to them, and they figured out how to work out a way to, to set them up and, and ship them off safe and sound, protecting everybody's laws and serenity and lives. Uh, and they took Ranald with them, uh, where he briefed Congress as one of the only people in the Western world to have seen Japan from the inside. This testimony was very important because, uh, as regular listeners and students of Japanese history would know, the Perry expedition was coming soon. Mm-hmm. And the samurai who uh, uh, negotiated that treaty was also one of Ranald's students. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. The story of Ranald McDonald. No clowning. But to answer the prompt uh, uh, on the docket, Ellie spent her Labor Day moving the great Lady Ezra, that sweet orange cat we mentioned, uh, to her home in North Carolina and swearing a lot at traffic while the cat snored peacefully beside her. No. Thanks, Ellie. Willennial uh, writes in uh, and shares that on their Labor Day, uh, they had a nice D&D session uh, and then went to their night shift uh, and labored. They did share that they are generally not super enthusiastic about Labor Day uh, since they are in the service industry. But this year they, they were able to uh, spend some time with friends who they usually can't see on weekdays. So that was nice. Yeah, yeah. All the businesses that people interact with have to stay open. Mm-hmm. So all the businesses that do other things that are closed that day, those people can go to stores and yes. anywhere that's not the bank or post office. Yes. Yeah. Funny how that goes. Thanks, Millennium. Yeah. Robin writes in with basically an album. Of cat pictures. Yeah. We met Tina and Martha and And Gravy. Gravy Gravy was born on Thanksgiving, and I think that's lovely. But there were also words in this email. Uh, This Labor Day, Robin spent working as well as a craft vendor in uh, the Pike Place Market, which sounds busy, but also kind of fun. Maybe. I don't know. I I hope you had a good day. (laughs) Thanks, Robin. Maggleby writes in, a long-time listener, but first-time writer. They are answering our last prompt that is also relevant to the previous prompt of things that didn't go as planned. Mm -hmm. And they had planned to have a game group on Labor Day to pick up a campaign that had gone on hiatus a few years earlier. It never works. (laughs) Uh, One of the players was ill and never showed up. So instead, uh, with their best friend from college, uh, they went on a side quest to Ikea. (laughs) So that sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Also, regarding uh, Labor Day, Magleby shares uh, that they uh, work in the factory that headquartered the War of Bread and Roses. Yeah. Uh, and between the history of the building itself and the fact that the machinery that is used predates child labor laws, the factory floor is really haunted. Wow. No, nobody's invented better machinery since then? Wow. Does, does it meet, like, safety standards of today? You know, they don't make them like they used to. Uh, Proper maintenance, they'll... <laughs> okay. Thanks, Magleby. Oh, and Mackleby uh, is telling all their friends and baristas about our shows. Yes, yes. So thank you. Thank, thank you for you following much. through on that. 
So Claritic writes in, speaking of International Labor Days, Labor's Day? Labor's Days. Uh, that hers, of course, is in March. Mm-hmm. Although South Australia, New South Wales, and the Australian Capital Territories are in October, you see, Australia just has a certain number of national holidays, and each state of Australia is free to divide them up as they see fit around the calendar. Okay. So when people get what days off is apparently wild. I mean, that's kind of cool in a way because that's got to like spread out tourism a bit. Mm-hmm. Labor Day across the country is not going to be crazy because it's not for everyone. So not <laughs> everyone's taking a day trip that day. Yeah. Yeah. South Australia and Victoria get days off for horse races. The Queen's birthday is usually held in most states the second Monday in June. She wasn't born then. <laughs> in fact, King George V was born closest to then. They just renamed the holiday when they stopped having a king to a queen. They didn't move the day. Okay. Some states also have holidays for uh, football league finals. Oh. Like, like the Super Bowl The here? Super Bowl feels like it should be a holiday, but it's not. No, it's just In a Sunday. In Australia, for the AFL, it is. Yeah. Of course, the, the state of Victoria's is held on the Friday before the actual grand final. So while it's in observation of the game day, it's not even the game day. But... That's very confusing. How do they print calendars there? Now, Western Australia celebrates the Queen's birthday the day after the AFL's grand final. So they they get an extra long holiday weekend. So, like, every state has to print their own calendars, is what I'm learning. Or the the, uh, small font on the bottom is very small. And, like, lists a lot of stuff. Yeah. Now, Queensland celebrates the Queen's birthday in October, and Claritic has no idea why. Northern Territory and Tasmania gave one of their days each, I guess, uh, to local councils to decide on their public holidays. Uh, so in rural areas that goes to, like, certain agricultural shows turn into mandated government three-day weekends. But, you know, depending on your local council, which weekend that is, is scattered all over the place. Yeah. You could do a driving tour of Tasmania and enjoy a different three-day weekend all through October. Oh my goodness. That's so confusing. Also, the Northern Territory has something called Picnic Day. Why? No one knows. Oh, do you picnic on it? I would, just to make sense of it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for confusing us even more, Claritic. We really appreciate that. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Kobe uh, writes in to share their uh, favorite painting, um, which is a very old prompt, but they are a new listener to the show, so it's welcome. That old. It's kind of old. Thank you, though. Uh, and their favorite painting is The Hesitant Betrothed by Auguste Tolmouche. They shared the actual image of this painting, and my goodness. Uh, <laughs> one thing they point out with it is... Is that how you felt six years ago, dear? Well, No. Uh, (laughs) so this painting has, like, a bride who just looks really, really off at the world. She's getting primped, she's getting ready to go. And she's just like, That sums up her facial reaction. Yeah. And everyone's like, it's okay, dear, let me kiss you on the head, let me hold your hand. And she's like, Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's gonna be my ringtone right there, I'm I'm (laughs) snipping that that's my text alert noise. Uh, and Kobe uh, points out that the straight-on gaze that this woman has is not even just the the expression, but the straight-on look is something you don't really see uh, from women in painting a lot. Uh, also, they point out the um, how they really like the the textures in the women's dresses because mm-hmm. you can see how like fancy the fabric is yes um and it is a very cool uh painting so thank you for sharing and thank, thank you for you writing much. in yes and listening. Glad we had so many first-time writers this time we did yeah thank you all and if you would like to send us a letter where can those go dear history honey's podcast at gmail.com and that's a great place for your uh coffee recipes i guess uh stories like ellie uh corrections like peter tried but uh, i'm sorry i'm never gonna see vosterboten right sorry 
and your responses to our regular prompts. Starling, what would you like to hear about for our next episode? Uh, so our prompt for next time yes? is, what is the last book you read? Ooh. And tell us if you liked it or not. I'm really excited for when we get to this part of the next episode to yeah. tell people what I wanted the prompt to be. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You better make a note so you remember. Yes. Because we were not going to do it. No. <laughs> it took you a minute to realize why. Yes. But again, those can go too. Historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. And while you're out there, get online, hanging out, surfing the World Wide Web, being a cyberpunk who fights every day for liberation, you can uh, give us a rating and review on those passionate independent storefronts like the iTunes <laughs> Apple Podcast Store, where the real underground lives. <laughs> Uh, you can also, you know, tell a friend. That's more like it. That's the good stuff. Word of mouth goes a long way. Yeah. <laughs> Something I'd like to share mm -hmm. is that we are getting ever closer. We are less than a month from the return of Riverdale, and therefore... We have totally lied and failed about doing any off-season episodes. The return of Sex Archie is the end of that sentence. You interrupted me with shame. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. But here's one little hint of what would have been in there. My prediction is that somewhere in season four, the paramilitary that Jughead delivered that crate to in uh, the, the season two episode, Tales from the Dark Side, yeah. I think they're coming back. Yeah. Yes. That makes sense. <laughs> Let's hope some Sex Archie listeners are listening to this right now. <laughs> we love making that show. Mm -hmm. And it'll be so nice to have Riverdale back making us make that show again. Yeah, because we, we took an unplanned full summer off. Yes. From just that. Nothing else in our lives. <laughs> um, hence why it ended up happening, I think. But look out for that. We'll, we'll be sharing it once it is... Back and better than ever with the uh, uh, season four premiere. Mm -hmm. I'm hyped. I know some of you are hyped too. And I think the rest of you would do well to, to giving the first three seasons a shot. Yeah. Uh, but with that, I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And history's better with, with your honey. honey.